The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. Um, my name is Kyoko Katayama. So um, the talk is on deference, differences as expressions of unity, or the Buddha is in the detail. And I'm sitting here being aware that each of you is utterly unique and different. And I probably know anything about you. I know nothing about you. And in general, how little we really know about the details of each other's life. And yet there's a sense of shared aspiration and care a dynamic unity called community. It's amazing. So this evening, I'm going to share my, some of my reflection on that. <clears throat> um, a few months ago, my uh, a dear Dharma friend, Patrice Kelch, has given two great Dharma talks on um, the titles was Wise View, Wise Intention, and white racial frame. Any who 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 heard that talk? Well, okay. Um, so most of you missed it. Um, I really encourage you to listen to her talks on the Dharma Seed through the Common Ground website. Do you all know about that? How to access these Dharma talks by going to Common Ground? Going to um, is that, what's the title? Dharma, Audio Dharma. And then you can decide on the name of the teacher or the title of the talk or date, I think. So um, it's a wonderful resource. Anyway, like Patrice and along with 28 others, I too was part of the 10-week-long anti-racism study and dialogue community circle called ASDIC, and um, a new cycle is about to begin away from common ground, um, if you are interested. Um, what was most impactful was learning the particulars of the historic legacies of the slavery and the genocide of the native people, not told in the textbooks. I felt then and still feel a complicated grief. It's sobering to realize how little we know about each other's stories. And yet, we share the same country. The experience of the circle, the anti-racism study circle, has given me more courage to speak my own racial truth within this community and I've done that in some other talks, as well as willingness to bear witness to uncomfortable moments, both as a person of color and as a person of many privileges, without just despairing or disappearing. So I even discovered that I had racist thoughts against the squirrels in my garden. 
Our yard with seven mature oak trees has created a perfect condition for a squirrel metropolis. And two oak, oak trees poke right through our deck where we cut holes around the trunk. And the myriad branches are their streets dotted with their homes along the way. And I see them scurrying effortlessly from one branch to the next and down the main highway of the trunk. Well, I happen to be a gardener, and the squirrels wreak havoc in my yard. And I, I um, reflected on this a few months ago, but um, just um, a couple months ago, I, when I was opening the, an avocado, the, the pit was ready to sprout. And I thought, how can I throw this in the garbage? This is life coming. So I put it, you know, the, those three toothpick twigs, I put it in the water. I haven't done it for 20 years. My mother used to do that. So for two months, that pit sat in the water. And uh, about a month ago, it started to sprout something. And, and finally, it grew about... Uh, uh, stalk, sprout, 10 inches long with little tiny, cute, beautiful leaves. And I planted it in a pot very tenderly, just really so happy that this happened. And I put it on the deck. I'll tell you what happened to that. In the spring, I plant colorful flowers in pots to put on the deck. The squirrels dug up the pots, uprooting the plants, scattering dirt and wilting my beautiful flowers. And last year they even chewed, chewed up the thickest of the plastic lid and tipped the pail full of sunflower seeds meant for the birds. All the tulip bulbs, tulip buds in the garden were eaten in the spring, leaving only the sad petals on the, on the ground. Maybe it was actually the timid rabbits who did it, but it's easier to blame everything on the squirrels. And the day after I put that a beautiful avocado pot, I put it in a beautiful pot too, and uh, it was completely dug up, and the squirrel ate that avocado pit. Anyway, so one morning, when I saw through the kitchen door a squirrel chewing on something on the deck table, I felt anger and exasperation. You're nothing but a destroyer of my tulips and my flower pots and now my avocado plant. And in the next nanosecond following this thought, the reactive mind made a declaration that therefore... All the squirrels are bad and stupid. The awareness observed how the mind connected yesterday's chewed tulips or chewed avocado plant with today's squirrel as if that particular squirrel did it and generalized the accusation of this singular squirrel to all the squirrels as the enemy of my garden.
Only if they are not here, I would have a beautiful, orderly garden and my deck. The eagle ranted in the next second. Then I noticed an unpleasant body sensation co-arising with these thoughts. My stomach was like a fist that made a defensive wall between the squirrel squadron and me. There was a subtler but undeniable yucky feeling about myself beneath the force of anger. You know, I think it was the Buddha who said, you will never be punished for your anger. You will only be punished by your anger. The experience of anger itself is suffering enough. Even though these thoughts were generated as a reaction to protect my garden, they didn't feel good in the body. I didn't like the fist in my stomach. And I didn't like the person who wished genocide of the squirrels in order to preserve my garden. I heard my heart, my dear heart, cry out. The heart said, the anger and fear do not tell you your truth. So in the next moment, I came out of my stupor and saw the squirrel as if for the first time. You know, until then, I wasn't really seeing the squirrel. My attachment to see the tulips bloom and for the flower pots to be left unravaged obscured the truth about the squirrels and the truth about the garden and, of course, the truth about me. In my reactivity, the perception of the squirrels was as the destroyer of my garden, my garden. Seeing this, I could then laugh at the absurdity of believing I own this tiny bit of earth, as they say in Japan, as big as cat's forehead. Well, that morning, watching these thoughts and feelings, the body sensations rapidly unfolding, unfolding, I thought, oh, this is how racism happens. Even if I had done a lot of inner work around racism, even if the thoughts lasted just a few seconds, for sure I had racist thoughts against the squirrels. I looked at the squirrels from the point of view of wanting to guard my garden, investing in the illusion of the ownership of the land, illusion of the ownership of the land. There needs to survive a mere inconvenience to me. And then stereotyping all squirrels as, as threats to my garden and the frustrators of my dreams of my desire for order and control, for my benefit. 
Much of learning in the in the anti-racism circle was about this. How how the white settlers justified and normalized the slavery and genocide of the native people from the point of view of guarding the whites' benefits, whether it is the ownership of property or commerce. In seeing the squirrels, I was just thinking about me. I didn't really see the squirrel. So, coming out of the stupor, I observed the little gray-brown creature with interest, finally, allowing, observing, letting it be. This creature was at least 100 times smaller than me, flittering on the deck table, looking around for her safety, for something good to eat, or perhaps for some materials to build a nest for her babies. Utejaniya, a Burmese monk, and by the way, the meditation we did earlier was uh, inspired by Utejaniya. Utejaniya said, we must look at life as it is and come into intimate contact with it. You know, what mind is really good at abstraction, you know, and making broad generalization, but in order to notice the particularities, we have to bring attention to the experience. And when we do that, wisdom reveals itself. The garden, this bit of earth, doesn't really belong to me. And you know, dirt is something I return to when I die. I know close to nothing about the squirrels with whom we have been sharing the land, in that particular land where my house is for 30 years. My self-centered attachment to my garden melting away, I finally observed the particulars of the squirrel with a desire to know more. Black, beady eyes, larger in proportion to its face, little petals of semi-translucent ears, fluffy, animated tail, and oh, they are claws, tiny but so adept and strong. They can run down the trunk upside down and dig into my pots with those claws. When I paid attention to the details of this particular one squirrel, surprise, I began to feel close to her, like discovering a long-lost friend, even though I was the one that was lost. The squirrel has its own distinct life, her own story of birth, survival, and death. How does the inside of her nest on a precarious branch look like? How does she find her acorn in the dead of winter when the earth is frozen beneath a foot of snow? How does a squirrel nurse her babies? 
What do the babies look like? What does this squirrel see with those big dark eyes when she sees me? In observing her aliveness, her unique features, and becoming interested in how she and her clan survive, I developed a whole new appreciation of them. This particular little squirrel matters. She belongs here as much as I do. Her life, and probably her survival, is not separate from mine. By simply being a squirrel, she taught me about my ignorance. I needed this squirrel to wake up. I always love the story of an old woman putting starfish back to the sea one by one. Maybe, maybe many of you know that story. There was a storm, and thousands and thousands of starfish washed up on the shore, and they were drying up. When the passerby saw um, an old woman gently throwing the starfish back to the sea, he asked, Why are you doing that? There are so many, it's useless. And an old man, old woman, did I say man or woman? Woman, it's old woman in this story. It was an old woman who was putting the starfish back in the ocean one by one. And old woman said, It makes difference to this starfish. It makes difference to this starfish. And she went back to her task. Do you think? It made a difference to the squirrel that I became interested in her as an individual squirrel, in her particularities. It for sure made a difference for me. When we are on the spiritual path, sometimes we get confused about the significance of being a separate individual and all the ways that make us different and unique and the significance of our desire for unity, of shared values and visions. A lot of times we think that unity is more emphasized on the spiritual path. We all want freedom, but freedom means different thing if you're a prisoner or if you are a disabled person on the wheelchair, or if you are a dancer, or a day laborer. We all want to be happy, so there's a unity. But how we find it is unique to each person. It's so easy to overlook this. This confusion is revealed even in the middle-class liberal attitude of valuing our similarities. We find safety and comfort in our alikeness. Noticing differences bring up uneasiness. Do you remember the feeling you had the last time you became aware of new difference with your trusted 
friend, with your beloved, in search for the similarities and oneness, we dismiss significant details that make each of us unique. We used to think being colorblind was a good thing. Even recently someone told me, I don't see you any different than me. And he meant it as a compliment and an invitation. But the effect was feeling invisible and disenfranchised. When I say I'm from Japan, people try to connect with something they know about it, of course. Many people tell me about their trip to Japan or the, a Japanese person they know or their love for Japanese art. And that's the way they let me know they have a favorable opinion of Japan and therefore maybe of me. I've done the same. I used to live in Italy and I have nostalgia for it. When I overhear people speaking in Italian, I want to say, I used to live there, and I want to try on my bad Italian. Ciao, come stai. It's innocent and sweet. But I stopped doing that. Because on the receiving end, it highlights how other they are, I am. Instead of finding and caring about my particularities, preconceived notions about a culture and its people from their point of view are imposed on me, on them. In this kind of cultural moment, if we don't hurry up and bridge the perceived differences, we are left with the edginess of unfamiliarity. That moment of discomfort is the crucial moment to investigate what is really true about me, about this person in the moment. By leaning into the discomfort, we learn to access our authentic goodwill to connect. We may even recognize with humility the truth of how little we really know. It's probably more genuine for people to say, I have no idea about your experience in Japan. Is there something you'd like to tell me? Now, that's a real invitation. In each of us as a human being, there is an inherent movement towards unity and just as powerful and undeniable truth of our uniqueness in our particularities. And when one is denied at the expense of the other, we are diminished and restricted. This becomes a crucial question for relationships and communities. When we listen to the pull towards unity, to experience the ecstatic boundarylessness, we make the particulars disappear. And then, later, sometimes shaken by the inner conflict of the differences, we confuse feeling safe and wanting to be closer with 
not discerning the particulars of each person, each thing. We realize it is the particular that make us love this person. True love lies in not only willingness to notice the particulars, but valuing them for what they are. It's not just tolerating, but valuing. It's a challenge to learn and value the other's particularities when we haven't fully embraced our own uniqueness. If we are not secure in our own self-knowledge, our own truth of who we are, well, then doubt comes up. The fear of losing ourselves arises. What do we really have to lose? We forget that in the very momentary losing of ourselves, a new learning can take place. It's true when we finally acknowledge how little we know and open ourselves to learning, we don't know what we are going to discover. It's true. Learning can be risky. It could be something good, or it could be something unpleasant. That is the risk we take. In getting to know the squirrel, I let go of my tulips and I let go of my orderly deck, my garden. I was changed. And who knows? I might find myself one day buying a bag of peanuts in the shell and scattering in my garden. The more grounded we are in the awareness of our particularities and their inherent goodness, the more we are able to notice and welcome the particularities of others. There's nothing selfish about deeply knowing and valuing what makes each of us unique, what makes each of us tick. How else can we value that of others? The Buddha said, Upon searching through the entire universe for someone who is more deserving of your love and affection than yourself, and that person is not to be found anywhere, you, yourself, as much as anybody in the entire universe, deserves your love and affection. And here's another facet of the paradox. We, as a form, as a body, exist on the relative plane. The survival instincts happens on this plane because survival is about keeping the body, the sense of self, intact, body alive. The self gets constructed around this drive for survival. All the fears and anxieties stem from this. Now, we're also not the body. We are awareness not bounded by the physical form. 
the awareness reveals to us that reality includes the vast mystery beyond apparent world of form. We get an inkling of formless. Some call it true nature, God, emptiness, bodhicitta. A paradox is that we need the form, this, this very body with its instincts for survival and its particular experiences in order to gain insights about the formless. We need the form to know the formless. Experience is located in time and space. It's not someone else's experience. It is lived through you. It is not interchangeable. Deep in our practice of awareness, such as on retreat, our uniqueness doesn't seem to matter. We feel so open and so connected. We feel we are one. And I have felt that myself. And unity is ecstatic. Dissolving the separation of self and others is really a precious experience one that feeds and inspires our path. But then it does not erase the truth of our uniqueness. We also live on the plane of earth and form. In this very body, a facet of unity expresses itself in the particulars. Unity is not eliminating differences. This is a paradox the mind has difficulty grasping. So we must learn to hold both the longing for unity and the gift of uniqueness. Our true nature is not found out there, but in the particulars of this body this blade of glass. In the uniqueness of each experience when attended with interest and care. So I want to say again, to notice the particulars, we have to bring awareness and attention to that. Otherwise, mind is abstracting all the time and it's making distance from the experience, the intimacy cannot happen without bringing attention, caring attention and awareness to the details. So, in closing, um, I would like to share my favorite poem, and I think it's favorite of many people, Wild Geese. I started to see the wild geese, Canada geese, flying in the sky in the last week by Mary Oliver. You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert, repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. 
tell me about despair, yours, and I will tell you mine. Meanwhile, the world goes on. Meanwhile, the sun and the clear pebbles of the rain are moving across the landscapes, over the prairies and the deep trees, the mountains and the rivers. Meanwhile, the wild geese, high in the clear blue air, are heading home again. Whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination, calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over, announcing your place in the family of things. The world offered itself to your imagination, calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over, announcing your place in the family of things. Wild Geese by Mary Oliver. So it's a little after 8, and we have until 8.30, Right? So we have time. So uh, before comments or questions, let's try a little experiment. Please take a few deep breaths in a relaxed body. And I invite you to think about what makes you unique. What is your particulars? And if you have difficulty with the question, then think about what gets in the way of knowing or coming up with words about your uniqueness. And then in the moment, not yet, in the moment, I'm going to ask um, you to turn to your neighbor. Did you have enough time? You need more time? Raise your hand if you need more time. Okay, one more minute. If unique is a hard word, think about particulars. Okay. So... Um, In a moment, I'm going to ask you to turn to your neighbor. But before you do that, 
Um, I want to say something about introverts and extroverts. And maybe, you know, the particular ways you come may be introvert or extrovert. So I'm a psychotherapist by uh, profession, well, almost retired. Um, So I reflected a lot about introverts and extroverts. And, And they sort of live in a different universe. And so the extroverts, in this kind of situation, they get excited because they know as soon as they start talking, something will come out. And they discover, discover whatever it is by talking. And it's, it's, it's energizing for them. And, um, and so by the time the extrovert finished talking, they're kind of done. It's, it's finished. Um, and they're on to something else often. Now, introverts... Um, introverts kind of travel down 2,000 miles into the depth of the well. And they kind of deeply, deeply feel the question and process. And then they sometimes have to travel back up 2,000 miles to say something. And often by the time the introvert finally has something to say, the extrovert person, if you're talking to an extrovert, they are like 2,000 miles away. And it's, you know, it's, it's really challenging. Um, in, in this country, I think the Myers-Briggs did some kind of study, and it could be an old study, so I don't know how current it is. But in America, uh, about 75% of the population is extrovert. And extroverts seem to be, have easier time in society, and they seem to be more valued. Um, in Asia, it's reverse. So in Asia, about 75% of people are introvert, and they have this introverted process. And they respect the introverts. They seem to be more humble and takes, don't take up the space and so on. So um, for this kind of center, um, introverts are drawn to this. Because we come here, we sit quiet. If we don't want to, we don't have to say anything, except in this kind of situation, gulp. Oh, my God. Do we have to talk? (laughs) Um, And I I really want to be respectful um, of the people who, um, who, who doesn't know what to say, who doesn't want to talk, um... And I, I like those who don't want to talk or share to feel um, that there's a space for them too. And they, they get to take their rightful place. What did Mary Oliver say? Uh, you, know, you have your own place. It's announced by Mary Oliver. So um, let's be really sensitive, you know. I mean... One of the ways that you know you're particular is do you know if you're introvert or extrovert? Do you know the extrovert's process? Do you know what happens when the extrovert process meets introvert process? You know, who take up the space and so on. So, is that helpful? Okay. 
So I would like you now, if you want to stay in this, if you don't want to share this experience, uh, one way you can signal is you can close your eyes. And if your eyes, if someone, if you turn around to speak to somebody and if that person's eyes are closed, that means that person is choosing to not engage and that really needs to be absolutely respected and valued. Okay? So if you don't want to talk, close your eyes. That's really okay. So I would like you to um, find a neighbor that you don't know or you don't know very well and introduce yourself and, and tell something you like this person to know about you and then take turns um, and then when I ring the bell now one of the things that happens is especially for the extrovert this is so exciting the energy of the room goes Phew! <laughs> and then when I ring the bell no one hears the bell so I like the bell to be respected so when the bell rings um, thank, uh, make sure um, you take turns telling the person your name and what you like the person to know about you. Take turns. And when the bell rings, uh, say thank you and come back. Is that clear? Okay. Find somebody. Or close your eyes. <laughs> uh, you both took turns? Okay, you can finish after, if you like. If you didn't finish, finish after, if you like. So you get to know each other at least by name? Yeah? You know the name? And you get to share something? Okay. Well, thank you. Thank you both to those who um, shared. And thank you uh, for those who stayed quiet and kept your eyes closed. I don't know if it took, I think both takes courage. So thank you for both. Um, comments, questions? <laughs> the, the question, the first question I asked individually was to think about what makes you unique. Or what are your particulars? And then what I asked each other to share is what do you want to tell the other person? Whatever you want to tell the other person. Yeah, because I tried that. And, you know, that, that was hard. And so I kind of said, okay, what makes me particular? So um, thank you. I, I think that's, that's true. It's a hard question. Yeah. And also, we want to think about, what did you say? We want to think about what's similar. Did you say that? Right. Yeah, yeah. And, and in, in a 
homogeneous place, that kind of works. But like if, you know, if you are a black person or if you come from a very different background, um, they feel their particulars. And it's really hard to connect on the similarities. And, and, and as we said earlier, our, our desire to just want to be similar and dismiss the particulars is very, very powerful and unconscious. It's just good to be aware of that. Yeah, thank you. One of the things you said in your talk, um, I, how we're all the same but uh, different. Um, I can't remember exactly what uh, what you were uh, what you were saying at that point, but it was like, uh, you know, today I, I did a, uh, a job at the stadium at the game, and I ended up being put inside the game ushering, where others were kind of left outside, you know, at the gate, and I felt like. Um, that's kind of um, how, you know, like how do I get to be inside the game and the others are collecting tickets, standing tickets. And then I thought, well, inside the game, maybe this is the way I rationalize it, is like I'm in the game, but I'm very distracted by what's going on in the game. If I was out in the game standing, I probably would have meditated. So, but still, it was like we're all in this together, but... There's disparities. Um, they get to do that. I got to do that. And um, so you, you felt special in a way. Yeah. yeah. And not going well. I'm going to quit this yeah. and go yeah. out there and say, yeah. "Do you want to come in?" Because I couldn't see myself collecting yeah. anything, but I didn't really see myself yeah. standing yeah. and meditating. Yeah. So you know, the question of you know, am I special, is is uh, confusing and it's a big one because. What do we say to our kids as we raise them? You are special, you're special, you're special. And then we come to center like this and we learn nobody's special. It's true. We're not special. I mean, nothing special about us. We're all going to die one day. And then, you know, 100 years from now, nobody's going to remember any of us. You know, we, we're not special. So so we have to hold this as a paradox. And yet, this life, this body, matters. It matters. It's, it's not special, but it matters. And what I do in this moment matters. The action I take in this moment, the particular action I take in this moment conditions the next that those details, the particulars. So maybe it's not so much about uniqueness or specialness, but the particulars matters because, again, the awareness is on the particulars, not on the abstraction of the thoughts. We have to pay attention to that. Yeah, does that make sense? Yeah, so you, you felt special, you felt different, you know, you got the privilege, right? Right. And then you thought, you realized, you kind of equalized it. You know, it's like, oh, if I wasn't here, I could be doing something else. So that was great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay.
This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.